0: Welcome to Inside the Castles, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Aaron Schneider.
1: And I'm Angie Fryermuth.
0: In today's episode, we're going to explore the innovative tools developed by the Corps to address the challenges posed by climate change. You know, I think this is a really important topic, obviously, I feel like, you know, within the recent history here, we've had, you know, hurricanes or tropical storms hitting California. We've had wildfires in Maui. Seems like every time you turn around, there's something that can be related to climate change. And there's lots of challenges out there. And the Corps is always talking about resiliency. But I guess I'm kind of I have really no idea, Angie, what kind of tools the Corps might be able to deploy to either help the Corps or just the you know American people to, to cope better with climate change. And so do you have any idea what this might be?
1: Yeah, I've had the fortune of working closely with our guests uh, here on some communication efforts, and so I do know more about the tools that are out there, and I really think that they're going to help local communities with some of their planning um, in the future, and so I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more.
0: Sounds good. Well, I suppose our listeners want to actually hear from our guests today versus our, our lack of understanding or my lack of understanding as it pertains to what tools are available so with us today we have will beach and brantley thames to provide us some insights into the core's cutting-edge approaches to building resilience in the face of changing climate thank you both for joining us today thanks for having us yeah great to be here all right so before we get into this topic could you each tell us a little bit about yourself and your role within the core brantley let's start with you
2: yeah thanks brantley thames here um actually Work with Will Beach as the Climate Preparedness and Resilience Community of Practice Lead. I work out of the Louisville District, but I've done a lot of work with Will nationally. Currently serve as the CPR COP National Policy Advisor on Climate and Military Programs, and also as the Regional Technical Specialist for the Great Lakes and Ohio River Division for flood risk management. Worked for the Corps for about 22 years. My primary role over my career has been as a hydraulic engineer But more recently, the last decade or so, I've supported climate adaptation planning across USACE, uh, and more recently, Army and DOD. And I'm Will Veach, and
3: as Brantley said, I'm the lead of the Climate Preparedness and Resilience Community of Practice out of headquarters. We are within the Civil Works Engineering Branch within Engineering and Construction at headquarters. And the Climate Preparedness and Resilience Community of Practice is a group of about 300 or so Professionals across the Corps of Engineers who have signed up to receive my emails and are in one form or fashion or another interested in helping the Corps of Engineers become more prepared for the impacts of climate change. We do a lot of things to help make that happen from teaching training to informing policy, writing technical guidance, and also championing the tools that we're going to talk about today. Before I came to headquarters, I was a hydrologist in the New Orleans district, so I got to experience the impacts of climate change directly. I have been at headquarters now for about um, two and a half years.
1: I think it's safe to say that when people hear the word climate change and then associate it with the federal government, that's just what they do. They associate it with the federal government and not sure who within the federal government is doing what. I just think it's important for us to to take a little bit of time and help set the stage and say what the core is doing in regards to climate change and like some of our initiatives at the national, regional, and local levels. So Will, any thoughts on that?
3: Sure. Well, as informed by and required by several of the administration's executive orders, we are doing a lot of things on climate change. The way executive order fourteen thousand eight phrases it is tackling the climate crisis, and the way we tackle that crisis comprises all kinds of actions from what people might call climate mitigation or sustainability actions, which are actions that we take to reduce our impact on the climate, like reducing our greenhouse gases emitted or our energy and water use, to the preparedness and resilience actions that our community is more involved with where we're talking about getting ready for the impacts of climate change that are either already occurring or are reasonably foreseeable in the near future. But there's also other kinds of actions that we're involved in that's important to remember, like research and development at our engineering research and development centers, as well as the Risk Management Center, Hydrologic Engineering Center, and Super superwater Resources. There's just lots and lots of great research being done across the core to inform our climate action. And then I also don't want to forget about the actions we do to support other partners through our interagency international services program or through various kinds of partnership agreements. And Brantley's been involved in quite a lot of that kind of support for Army and DOD, for example. But we support countries around the world as well as agencies and others here in the United States um, with their climate too. So when it comes to our activities at the national level, really what it comes down to is it's our policy, and we have a policy statement that that talks about this, but it's our policy to climate change considerations into basically everything that we do. So when we're planning, engineering, constructing, operating, maintaining, rehabbing, or even divesting of infrastructure, all of those steps are required to mainstream climate adaptation. So it's really something that can't be separated at this point from the normal core business process. All of our missions, programs, operations, and projects must consider climate change. So when it comes to the way that most sort of regional and local initiatives are impacted by core work, I think the, the main impact is going to be through the effects of our civil works projects and our military support mission. Both of which are going to have climate change considered all throughout. That being said, we do also have a lot of work that we do on interagency working groups. We're sitting on working groups on things like greenhouse gas measuring and monitoring, and national nature based features, flood risk management, including the federal flood risk management standard. We help co author studies and reports like the 2022 NOAA report on sea level rise scenarios. We also collaborate on uh, various kinds of climate modeling and and downscaling and uh, production of of tools and data that are primarily intended for our project delivery teams to use, but then once they're produced, they are very often made public. Um, There's really no reason to keep them secret. So even though we're intending them for our own use first, they can also provide a lot of value uh, to the public. So I think a lot of regional and local initiatives can also gain value from some of those tools, reports, data repositories, and other things that we've created and, and made public.
2: Yeah, and just to add add to that, well, you had mentioned some of the support that we provide DOD and Army. We've worked on the development of a, a tool called Department of Defense Climate Assessment Tool, and it's actually um, an offshoot of a Civil Works Vulnerability Assessment Tool we built back in the 2015 time range. And the goal of that tool is really focused on providing, you know, the exposure to climate change, whether it's related to wildfire or flooding or drought, you know, some of those those climate hazards that, you you know, you would typically think about. It provides that sort of information for our our military installations so they can better manage their installations, do better planning, you know, make better plans for the future. Um, We're also supporting uh, DOD through the development of uh, nature-based solutions guides. We're developing one for for commanders and then one for planners. So that's going to go a long way to kind of step towards better incorporation of these nature-based type solutions that are are more sustainable over time. And then with Army, we've done a lot of work with their installation climate resilience planning uh, work that they're doing. We helped write and author the Army Climate Resilience Handbook which explains how to perform those climate assessments at the installation level. So we, we have a lot going on across a lot of different things.
0: That's really amazing. It sounds like you guys do have an awful lot going on. I was thinking of the list of things and it's like it must be hard to keep track of all this and I'm always so amazed at all the the great things that the core does that the vast majority of our listeners probably don't have any awareness of. So hopefully this is shedding some light on this. So I think Brantley you mentioned some tools, or actually I think Will mentioned that there's some tools out there. And Bradley you talked a little bit about these tools, but I wanted to, to see if you could dive in a little bit more and talk some about these tools. And in particular, you know, what do they do? And then are some of these tools available for other local communities to use and leverage?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, talking about our tools, I think they they kind of work across a couple categories. Uh, we have our coastal tools, and then we have our inland tools. And so those are kind of two major water resource regimes that we work in as an organization. There's really one tool that's being used right now for the-that's been developed for the coastal area, although we're working on two new ones coming out that should be out very soon. I'll talk about those. And then the inland tools, there's two tools there, and those are really focused on looking at historical trends in weather-and I say weather, I shouldn't say weather, it's not the right word there-but parameters such as like precipitation, stream flow, things that matter to our, our planners and our planning teams that are out there, uh, which is, in my opinion, the tools are developed for that use. They're really developed for our, our teams to be able to develop climate resilience plans, climate resilient plans, and um, provide that resilience to our, the communities that we're supporting. Uh, so starting with the coastal tools. The, the main one we we typically use is called the sea level tracker, and it's really a tool where that provides our users the ability to visualize our core, or you say, sea level rise curves. These are projections out through, uh, I think it's 2150. Will might have to help me there. Yep, I hit it right. Okay, good. But it also allows us to make comparisons to other sea level rise curve projections that are out there either that have been provided by NOAA or other local governments. I think there's one for New York. There's, there's a whole um, whole group of those these sea level rise projections. And so you can visualize those against each other. Uh, the tool also provides the ability to look back and look at observed sea levels that have occurred over the past you know, 40 to 100 years, depending on the, the gauge that you're looking at. You can look at these sea level trends and also kind of compare those as they approach the civil sea level rise projections that, that we provide to our PDTs. And those projections are really important to make sure that what we, you know, the infrastructure that we design and build today is going to work, you know, over the full life of the project and even beyond. Another really important aspect of this tool is what we call stream water levels, which is what we expect, that they're frequency-based. So a lot of our studies are based on the 100 years, a lot of people may have heard of the 1% annual exceedance probability event occurring. The tool also provides those estimations out into the future, those projections as well. And then many times when we're designing something, we care about a certain elevation not being exceeded. So if you're working in a community and you know that when this roadway overtops, you have major damages behind it, you can actually plot those kind of critical thresholds against those curves and and have a better understanding of what that impact might be to your community. Following up to that, a tool soon to be released is the Sea Level Analysis Tool. We call it the SLAT tool. It does everything that the Sea Level Tracker tool does, but it's been enhanced to to have a better user interface, more user friendly, more intuitive workflow. It's snappier, it's quicker. The framework has has just been built to perform a lot better for for users. There's all the all the capabilities that were that are in the Sea Level Tracker and and even more. Um, Another tool that we're working on now that I expect will be out soon is the Gate Operations Analysis Tool. We call it the GOAT, as you can imagine, great acronym there. And that tool is really focused on, you know, a lot of these coastal communities are going to-are being protected or, or probably will be protected by some sort of gated structure. And so this tool is there to help us analyze how frequently, how long gates will need to be closed. Allows us to optimize design and better understand this compound flooding situation, where you have riverine flooding from the headwaters and you have you have coastal flooding from the from the ocean. I mean, in general, I think we expect to have more frequent and longer uh, gate closures as we look at how climate will change in the future, how sea level will change in the future, and and those coastal storms associated. Uh, in terms of inland tools, we have two, like I mentioned. The one that looks back at at kind of our historical trends is called the time series toolbox. What's great about this tool is we have preloaded data that's pulling data directly in from the USGS. That's time series data like stream flow, a stage, river stage at at a specific gauge and that sort of thing. But it also allows the user to upload their own data, which I think is a really great thing because USGS may not have data where, where you need it and you might have data where you need it. So it gives you that flexibility. But the real goal of that tool is to perform these different kind of statistical analyses. One of those is a non-stationary detection analysis, which allows us to understand in the past what's changed. So that could indicate that a dam was built or that urbanization caused a change in how much, you know, how much the normal flow is or how much some sort of stream flow characteristic is. And then when you think about projected, climate models. that uh, we have our chat tool or the climate hydrology assessment tool. And this actually is pulling all this really complex data from that's been produced through these uh, global climate models, seeing outputs like stream flow, precipitation, temperature. The tool allows us to see those trends, to understand the range of uncertainty across the models. There's it's not there's not just one projection. There's kind of this range and then also understand what those projected trends may be. And then we can tie that back to, if something like streamflow is important to our design, whether it's ecosystem restoration or flood risk management, it allows us to tie that back and understand how that might impact the viability of a measure that we're investigating. And the last thing I wanna talk about uh, that kind of gets left out a lot are some of these other resources. Sometimes a tool isn't just a tool, sometimes a report is a tool. For our community, we've developed these regional literature Syntheses that pull all the complex journal articles, things that no one has time to read, and puts them into one document for each region and really provides that kind of real depth and breadth of knowledge to, to help support our, our teams as they as they go through their process of developing a climate assessment. We have some other, other stuff as well. We have a lot going on in the tools and resources department for sure. Well, Brantley, you did a great job covering
3: all the tools. I don't think there's anything else that I can add to add any more detail to what you did to explain all the tools. I think just in terms of giving a little context for why we have the tools, the history lesson here is that going back to when we created our first sea level guidance in its current form in 2009, we told the field to use these three scenarios the future sea level, and what they did was everybody created their own spreadsheet, and it was all all different spreadsheets all across the Corps of Engineers. First web-based tool we created was the sea level calculator, which has now evolved into the sea level tracker, and soon to be into the sea level analysis tool that you mentioned. But the whole goal of these tools is to make climate analysis easier and cheaper, faster, more repeatable, more consistent, uh, easier on the engineer or designer in the field, and also easier on the quality control reviewer, technical reviewer who is trying to check their work. So the tools that you mentioned are the ones that are publicly available. We do have more tools than that that we don't need to get into on this podcast because they're only accessible within the Corps of Engineers. But we do have quite a suite of tools. And one of our goals is to try to consolidate that group down so it's not quite so many. So the three tools you mentioned, uh, I'll just point out are the children of maybe five tools so as we go forward, we try to make these easier to use, more intuitive and streamline it down in, into fewer tools so it's easier on everybody.
1: It sounds like not only will these tools benefit internal to the use USACE as far as helping us build more resilient infrastructure um, and take a look at um, making sure that we're planning for appropriate weather events, et cetera. There are opportunities for these tools to help local communities, help them better understand the data that's available and how that data can help them make informed decisions within their community. So, Will, what are some benefits that these tools can provide local communities? Absolutely. You
3: know, as a project-funded agency, the way the CORE usually helps communities with their community resilience is through projects but we also recognize that not every community is able to partner on a project at any given time. And we do have programs that are also out there to help communities like the Silver Jackets and the National Flood Risk Management Program, Planning Assistance to States and Trouble Partnership Program. But if a community is pursuing its own climate resilience planning and they aren't able to partner on a, a Corps of Engineers Civil Works Feasibility Study or other kind of study, these tools provide a way for them to still get some information that can be helpful to them. And Brantley made a great point when he pointed out, it's not just the tools either. We have reports, we have literature syntheses, we have guidance documents. You know, local communities can also copy our engineering manuals or regulations or circulars and use those for their own planning as well. So the tools can can be something that helps communities even outside of the normal feasibility study process. But as Brantley mentioned, the Time Series Toolbox and the Sea Level Tracker are both tools that can really help teams understand the conditions that they're dealing with uh, in the past and present and then going forward into the future. So the Time Series Toolbox, again, is this one that you can take stream flow data or water level data from the USGS, or you can upload whatever data you like uh, that you may have handy, whether it's flows or rainfall or any other variable of interest. And then you can run these statistical tests and see, has something changed in this data? Has the rainfall gotten heavier or has the streamflow uh, gotten lower for some reason? Those kind of statistical tests really takes the heavy lifting off of the, the user. So they don't have to remember statistics or, or get an advanced degree in data science. They can run these 12 tests and see if there's been a sudden change point or these three tests to see if there's been anything Uh, any trends in the data over time. And that can tell you if if something's changed in the past because that could really undermine your design assumptions if you're assuming that things aren't changing but they actually are. And the sea level tracker along a similar line, it can tell you the way things were looking in the past, but then it can also put that in context with those three scenarios going out into the future. And actually, it's more than the three scenarios because the tracker also includes The NOAA scenarios from 2022 and 2017 and even 2012 It includes local state-developed scenarios from states like California and New York, New Jersey, that have developed their own scenarios. So, you can really put the observed data in context with the projections out in the future. And I think that's something that can really help communities. And then the other tool, the chat tool, is a little bit different. Because because the, the outputs there are derived from these climate models, it's really not telling you what will happen because, like Brantley said, there's so many different climate models and there's so many different ways that you can process that information um, that you could really get a lot of different answers depending on your preferences. But what it does allow you to do is it allows you to see in this apples-to-apples sense if something is changing over time in the model or if the models are saying that, temperatures are going to be higher or precipitation is going to be lower or whatever in the future simulation as compared to the past simulation. So even though that doesn't give you a crystal ball, it doesn't let you make a forecast of the future. It at least gives you an idea of the direction of change that the climate models are seeing. And that can be very helpful too, because it can really help you focus your attention on the kinds of vulnerabilities that might be important to focus on, you know, the places in the community or in the in the plan that you're planning uh, that might be most vulnerable or exposed and that need some extra attention. So I think those are just a few ways that communities can use them and I think the only other thing I'll throw in there is that the tools are also accessible to other federal agencies which might be able to benefit communities. So when FEMA or HUD or NRCS or Department of Transportation or any other federal agency might be doing something to partner with communities on their community climate resilience, the tools are also available for them. So, although we developed them originally for our own use, we put them out there in the public knowing that hopefully there will be a lot of other users out there who can who can get use out of them.
0: Well, that, that's really helpful and, and impressive. And thank you very much for not making me go back to another statistics class because um... That just doesn't sound that much fun. So uh, one question that comes to mind, uh, you mentioned this is publicly available. So how would our listeners go out and find these tools? Yeah, you can find them from our website, the
3: Core Climate website, which has got that long acronym of army.mil slash Core Climate. But you can also Google Core Climate and you'll find it. Uh, You'll see there's a link there for public tools developed by USACE.
1: We are nearing the end of our time together, but before we part ways, um, we always want to in on uh, getting to know where the core is going in the future. So where do you see USAID's climate initiatives going in the future?
3: Yeah, this is a great question. Even though we have talked a lot about all the things we've already done, we have even more ideas for big things that are still yet to come. So I could probably spend a whole podcast just on this question. but. I think I'll just mention a few things. One is working steadily in the direction of trying to use the outputs of climate model projections more directly. I think a lot of people, when they see these climate model downscaled outputs, they think of them as a forecast when that's really not what they are, and it's not really appropriate to use them in that way. But that doesn't mean that they can't be used for any purpose. So we're really working hard to try to come up with ways for our teams to make decisions informed by those model projections, uh, even if they're not going to tell you exactly what the flow is going to be in some future year. So we have recently released a guidance document on appropriate usage of uh, downscaled hydroclimatology, and we're working with some of our scientific partners to on a number of different initiatives to try to reduce the uncertainty in those projections and, and find ways to use them uh, in decision making. I'll also mention that um, we are going to be developing our new sea level guidance. I think I mentioned it before that the guidance in its current form was first put out in 2009 and then it was slightly tweaked in 2011. But it's going to be exciting times in sea level coming up here pretty soon. In 2025, we're going to get the new mean sea level published by NOAA, and we're also going to get a new geodetic datum, which means that the official height of the ground is also going to change. And just for fun, there is also going to be a Great Lakes datum, too. So in 2025, everything's going to change, and we want to make sure we have guidance in place for our teams so that when the height of the water and the height of the land all changes, they can still go on designing coastal structures and and plans using the best available, actionable information. And then I'll also say that as long as you've got us here talking to the public, uh, one of the big initiatives we've got is to build the bench. We know that there's a lot of recent graduates and other people out there who are very excited about climate change and want to be doing something to work in a place where you can make a difference addressing climate change, and I want to make clear that the Corps of Engineers is absolutely one of those places. Um, We implement a lot of infrastructure, and we have to make sure that when we design and build things that they are ready to perform into the future, despite the fact that we're uncertain about what the climate's going to look like. So we've got initiatives going both to recruit more people who are interested in doing this kind of work and also to provide more promotion opportunity within the core for our experts to contribute because there's, there's really no shortage of work. So it's just about getting the, the people in the right places. And then one last one I'll throw out there is training. We've recently uh, completed our Climate 101 training and, and put that on our internal intranet site, but we do want to make that public here pretty shortly, so keep your eyes peeled for that Climate 101 training when it uh, gets released to the public. There's a lot of plans for expansion on that training, too. Right now it covers kind of the basics of climate science and the impacts of climate change on core projects and how we address those impacts, but we've already got requests for things like risk communication under changing climate and specifically training on those downscaled projection sets. So we're going to be doing more and more on training, and that's going to be one of our big uh, initiatives going forward. So those are kind of the, the high-level ones I would like to point out. greatly. do you have any others you'd like to chime
2: in there? No, I think you, I think you hit it really well. I'm, I'm really excited about the training and the ability to, to get that out into the public. Um, as well as a lot of the initiatives that we're working with Angie on in communications. I think it's it's going to be a great initiative as we move into the next, you know, three, six months to a year.
0: Will, thank you for being on our show for the second time and Brantley for joining us here today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be sure to check out these climate tools. Thanks for joining us for this Inside the Castle podcast. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the Corps and revolutionize civil works together.